Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Talking Tudors, episode 156. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and I'm so glad that you could join me. I'd like to start by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron, and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and never miss an episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. May's prize is an amazing Anne Boleyn gift bundle. Head over to my Instagram account to see what's included. And a big thank you to Dr. Owen Emerson, Sandra Vasoli, Lucy Churchill, Catherine Holman and Sarah Morris for contributing to this incredible prize. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. At the end of the month, I'll be chatting to Emma Louisa Cahill about Catherine of Aragon. Please get in touch with me if you'd like to register for this event. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I'd love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag ILoveTalkingTudors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited that joining me on the show to talk about disability at the Renaissance Courts is Jessica Sekmezoy Urquhart. Jessica is a Scottish and Turkish disabled, autistic, working class, queer and non-binary historian and writer. They are currently undertaking a PhD at the University of St Andrews with Dr Amy Blakeway, Professor Sarah Carpenter and Dr Anna Del Campo supervising. The thesis is on the disabled history of neurodiverse natural fools and bodily diverse wonders at the royal courts of the English Tudors and Scottish Stuarts through which they hope to demonstrate the unique circumstances which allowed these disabled groups to have desired differentness and influence over rulers at the centre of Renaissance power despite their marginalisation and mistreatment in wider society. Their research combines disabled history and theory with court royal and social history in new ways. Our conversation is coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales.
Welcome to Talking Tutors, Jessica. It would be wonderful if you could just introduce yourself to our listeners and just tell us a little bit about your background. Hi, I'm Jessica, Jessica Sechbosayarkar, and I'm a historian of disability, but also kind of court history. It's an area that overlaps a lot through figures like court fools and wonders, people who had things like dwarfism, gigantism, but there's not been much overlap between these types of history. And I think it's um, it quite informs both sides. I'm currently in the third year of a PhD at St Andrews, uh, and I'm hoping to go and do a postdoc about kind of stuff I've covered so far, but maybe looking further along in time or looking at a different angle during the renaissance i'm basically someone who is disabled myself autistic chronically ill and that and so for me it's also a very personal thing uh, doing disabled history i want to show people that there's always been people like me and like a lot of disabled people absolutely and now as you've mentioned so your research has, has focused a lot on people with disabilities at the renaissance royal courts and so when did you actually first begin to really delve into this this area of study two different things were really the kind of things that inspired me a story in an english language class i had in like second year of undergrad and they told us a story which i think is apocryphal or it sounds made up about a jester of William the Conqueror who during his coronation I think it's him it's in one of the kings either him or slightly after him uh, and during the coronation I think it was the church was set on fire and a fool came in and shouted something and it was like a bad sign for the rain whoever it was either him or one of his kids and so we get told this story I don't know why they were telling us this story but they went on and said, oh yeah, sometimes these figures were disabled. And I remember that fascinated me. I don't know if it was about the same time, it was probably some a bit later. I got into the Song of Fire and Ice books uh, and obviously Game of Thrones when it came out before it went awful <laughs> near the end. And it was surprising seeing so many disabled characters, especially in the books. People like Tyrion, people who aren't featured in the show who have learning disabilities but also people who are physically disabled in that and even though it was a fantasy property it was it made me look into the real kind of history behind that yeah it fascinated me so uh R. Martin's part of the reason why I've ended up doing disabled history believe it or not I didn't expect that yeah, that's fascinating. And and if we think about the 16th century, could you tell us, I know this is probably a really complex topic, but can you give us an idea about how people with disabilities were actually viewed during that period? It really depends on what disabled group you're talking about. There is, with, with physical disabilities, things like if someone's an amputee, if they're described as usually in that period stuff like a cripple, then they are figures of charity you want to help them because a lot of them might not be able to work uh, and obviously as a Christian that's what figures in this period would be concerned with like delivering charity to them then there's people who are physically disabled like born disabled with kind of bodily diversity as I call it and on one extreme you've got people who are born as what would be described as monsters in this period People who have got severe kind of deformities when they're born, usually dying after they're born. Uh, and the word monster comes from to show, to warn. And that's kind of what people thought about these kind of births. If someone was born severely deformed and then died, it was a sign from God maybe telling town that they were 
they're doing something bad, they better change their ways, or the, there was something wrong with the parents, maybe they'd committed a sin, and the result was their child was born that way. So you've got this extreme of how physical disabilities can be viewed. And between that and kind of just uh, people going about who don't have bodily diversity in the same way, you've got people in the middle who are what was described as wonders or marvels, people who are not out with nature. They're part of nature, but they show nature's diversity in a beautiful way. So that was figures that I call wonders who were things like uh, might have dwarfism, might have gigantism. So they're treat, they're seen as human, just wonderful humans who look unique and they can show the universe in a kind of microcosm or macrocosm and show God's handiwork and everything. Uh, so figures who had conditions like that could often have opportunities at places like royal courts. There was a kind of view that they were different but not so different that they became inhuman so it's a it's quite a weird place for someone to kind of how, how these people were treated it's it's kind of weird because there's there's wonder and amazement at what they looked like but there is elements of kind of they're treated very different because of that when it comes to people who are what is described as natural fools in that period the views of them are kind of complicated in the royal court, these figures were seen as almost like they were born to be fools because through that, they have abilities that no one else has. They're seen as able to tell truths to rulers. Like just They have no filter and it's almost, it's meant to be a gift because rulers need a figure that will tell them what they need to hear. They'll just kind of blurt it out and not hide it because they're trying to be a favourite or whatever. And because these figures were disabled, they're allowed to be that. They're allowed to tell the truth. So it's their difference that gives them that ability. Some of them are seen as able to see the future uh, and obviously seen as comedic figures. So they, they are kind of figures of ridicule at times. But outside the court, there is the issue that people are either only able to maybe do very basic labour or they might have property, especially if they're rich, and that makes them a concern for kind of society. They need to have their guardianship taken over legally. And it's through kind of legal cases and writing that we see the first kind of, it's how they define the fool in that period. There's no medical kind of concrete definition of a fool in this period that only comes after. So in this period, the way they kind of come to attention if they're not a court fool, is through cases about them because they might mess up a family's kind of ownership of property. They might be unable to take care of themselves. Uh, they were seen as unable to consent. So that made them sometimes unable to partake in sacraments in, in the Catholic Church or Reformation churches. And in some way, they're kind of special. They're someone I would describe as liminal insiders, people whose difference makes them able to be an insider in their society. But at the same time, they've got no legal rights. They're kind of excluded somewhat from religious life. And for a lot of natural fools, would require charity and things like that if they are poor. So the court is this amazing space where you see these figures able to have power and kind of influence that even later on in 16, 17, 1800s, you just don't see. But if you weren't one of those lucky few who got 
got those positions, you're still quite marginalised. So you've talked a little bit about the falls of the Tudor court and people listening perhaps have also heard the term court jester and maybe even the term artificial falls. So how do they, these people differ? It's quite interesting that if someone from the Tudor period, before theatre really took off, came to the modern day and they saw people doing comedy routines on telly, they would see them as scroungers, as people that are taking money from disabled people who need to do that job. There's a text from earlier on in, I think it's the 1300s, it's Langland's Pierre Plowman, I can't remember when he wrote it off the top of my head, Uh, but in that text, it explicitly kind of compares people who are called artificial fools, people who aren't born with neurodiversity, like modern-day autism. They're described as almost kind of satanic figures who are stealing charity away from natural fools who are born unable to have normal jobs, normal lives. So it's almost like this position is a way to support these figures, whereas artificial fools in jesters are seen as figures who are early on in the period just kind of bad news they're doing something they don't need to do to make easy money that's something that begins to change in the Tudor period especially during Elizabeth's reign as theatre kind of popularizes people who are playing clown figures fools and pretty much like what eventually leads to our modern idea of a comedian. So it is fascinating that this position of kind of being a comedian almost was preserved just for these figures in that time. Yeah, that is fascinating. That's not really something I've thought of too much before, so that's really interesting. Now, Hampton Court Palace, which perhaps you've visited before, is home to a painting entitled The Family of Henry VIII by an unknown artist. And it was made in 1545 and shows Henry VIII with his long-dead wife, Jane Seymour, their son, Prince Edward, and his daughters, Mary and Elizabeth, as in the king's daughters, that is. In the wings, there are two other people who've been identified as Will Summers or Somers and Jane the Fool. Could you tell us a little bit about these individuals? They're both fascinating people. Will Summers, for instance, he's actually, we have more accurate ref- reproductions of what he looked like than we do Anne Boleyn. He's in, a, he's in that portrait. He's in the King's private psalter, which depicts uh, the King as King David and the fool that's mentioned in Psalm 52, I think it is, uh, the fool that's depicted as well. He seems to have had possibly uh, a hunchback or just bad posture and in stories by Robert Armin, he seems to have had also um, narcolepsy, it seems. They wouldn't have called it that, but yeah, he, he fell asleep a lot and stuff. Uh, and he arrives at the court after uh, the king's previous Phil Sexton falls from favour. He appears about 1535 with warrants mentioning that clothes have been purchased for him. And he features alongside people like Thomas Hennage, Anne Boleyn, Culpepper, the King's Page, human barbers, like just people who are in the household. And from that point, he's called our Phil John Summers. With a lot of Phil's like him and Jane, we, we do lack kind of certainty about their backgrounds. Usually it's said they've came from living on a farm. Uh, there's mention of a guy called Richard Farmer in Northamptonshire that he may have served and we hear it's almost like people are scouted and brought to the court at times. But with Jane, there's a reference 
for me to full cult bedding, like surname bedding, while she's serving Mary later on. So that might have been her surname, but it's unclear. So we know both of them were important, but we don't know their origins completely. With Jane, there's also this fascinating kind of like change of mistresses that she serves. There's a clothing account for Anne Boleyn and her daughter Elizabeth in the last year of her life. And it mentions clothing being purchased for a female film. Soon after that, she obviously gets executed and Jane appears in the household of Princess Mary. And she stays with her for a while until Catherine Parr becomes queen. And during that period of time, her and Mary are kind of welcomed back into the queen's household. And Jane the Fool is mentioned getting per- they purchase uh, it's like farm animals like chickens for her. It seems to be almost like a kind of Tudor version of like the well-being kind of industry. Like it seems to be about getting her out and giving her something to occupy her time with. She's also mentioned getting her head shaved and people later on who are looking after her. So usually you might shave someone's head if they're a fool, or you might do it if someone's ill. So she might have. It might have been for either reason of that, but. In the portrait that they go for featured in, she is wearing a cap. She seems to have short hair, but obviously she's quite small in them, so it's it's hard to tell completely. Will, meanwhile, has got monkey on his shoulder. There's a lot of depictions of people like that and court dwarfs picturing them with animals in this kind of... There's this Renaissance idea of the chain of being where there's an ideal form in God downwards, so difference isn't viewed as normal and abnormal in the way we think of it today. It's kind of, there's an ideal going downwards to the non-ideal. And so you're comparing, kind of comparing Will to the ape for a, a joke, but also kind of also connecting him back to the king and his family. This is the world that Henry rules over uh, and everyone has a place in it. And both of them served the Tudor dynasty up until Elizabeth. They're both at Henry's funeral and when when he dies they enter Edward's household and Will seems to have more of an active kind of role in performances. He's mentioned in a Yule performance for instance and it's only then that keepers are mentioned for him. That's kind of the reason a lot of people have struggled to figure him out because people think that the fact he was witty means he couldn't have been disabled. So he's often called a jester when, to me, he's just someone that, I wouldn't call him high-functioning artistic, but I'd say he's neurodiverse. I think he was someone that was very witty, but he was also someone who was disabled. So once Edward passed away, it's unclear where they were during Jane's very short rule, but they came back into the household with Mary and she, she treats them very well. She gets luxurious outfits for them they don't seem to have had as much of an active job during her period maybe more like it was charity and they acted as companions to her but the last kind of record we have of them is either Elizabeth's coronation or there's a mention of an ambassador visiting 1559 and there's two films that, that he sees but he doesn't tell us who they are so they're two amazing people and we do have a lot of information of them well there's a lot of portraits of them in the period but there's that issue where we don't know their complete life stories 
it's once they get to the core, it becomes kind of more visible. It's so fascinating. And it's interesting that you mentioned the scouting idea. So people sort of looking for these people, because I remember reading a, a letter written at the end of 1535 by one of Cromwell's agents. I can't remember exactly who it was, but you that might was- know the one. And he was out and about at the different monasteries, you know, doing his his role there. And, and he sort of said, oh, I've found this guy and he's great. He might, you know, be a great guy for a fool for Henry. So it's interesting that it does appear people were kind of on the lookout, I suppose. I don't think the the fool that's mentioned in that, I don't think they went with. No, I don't think so. Will's found, yeah, it's fascinating that there was figures looking out for people like us. Like the previous fool of Henry, who was also an actual fool, Sexton, sometimes also called Patch, which was a common fool name. He actually had served Wolsey before Henry VIII. There's stories of him supposedly telling Wolsey, when he showed him a, a grand tomb he was getting made for himself, he would have no one to pay to have him buried. So it's probably not a true story, but there's that thing of, oh, he saw he saw his future. You know, he knew the Cardinal wasn't going to have this lofty and fantastic legacy. He wasn't going to have people coming to his tomb. He was going to maybe not even have a gravestone. And Sexton, he serves in the King's Privy Chamber with a lot of different figures, some who fall with Anne. And so you have some people who come that way through a nobleman, maybe having a fill. When when the Cardinal fell, he gave Sexton to the King, asking him to, kind of, to look after him, which is quite, it's quite a sad story. They had to get a bunch of, I don't know if it was, I think it was grooms, uh, to like, forcibly drag him away because he was so distressed at leaving leaving Wolsey and he got a place in the household. Unfortunately, though, it seems to have ended because he insulted Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth. It's mentioned that... Was it Chapuis that mentions it, that, I think? Uh, yeah, he says that the king has nearly killed his fill insulting him and I think it's the groom of the horse or that someone in the stables uh, protects him and soon after he kind of falls out the records but some of the people he was alongside in the household are those who are accused of adultery with the queen so he got off light in a lot of ways yeah. to be honest so there was that even with these disabled figures who were allowed to overstep the mark at times you don't then call the king's daughter and the queen the, the things he called them yeah, um, absolutely. That's very true. Yeah, exactly. It was Henry's way or, or no way in the end, wasn't it? So we mentioned, obviously, Will Summers and, and Henry VIII. Is there much information about what their relationship was like at all? He was definitely someone who grew closer to the king over time. Once he became uh, yeah, the king's fool, we see him in records with people of the privy chamber, but doesn't appear in formal records, kind of prove completely that he's of the household that's the kind of issue we have with a lot of these fools because they were believed unable to kind of control their own money and things but yeah he's given comfortable clothing often in bright colours by King's wardrobe in the 1540s when Henry's becoming more isolated he's keeping the household even the outer parts of it at a distance from himself we see Will he's still appearing with him yeah, in 1545, a purchase of an eight was given to him. There's stories by those like Robert Arman and Thomas Wilson that mention him advising the king to keep common lands open. His uncle turns up, supposedly, 
Will takes him to his room, dresses him in his full coat, and they both appear before the king, and the king's having a laugh, like, oh, there's another fool now. And then Will uses that as an excuse to kind of say, like, oh, you can do this thing. You'll be blessed in heaven. Everyone will love you. And he's like, oh, what is it? And keep this land where my uncle is open to the public. Uh, and the king seems to do that. You see people like the king's secretary, Paget. Uh, referring to a saying of him while he's dealing with really tough negotiations. And one of the kind of saddest things is like the final Yule that Henry celebrates, he has the horses of himself and Will uh, taken by bars to Hampton Court to celebrate it. So he's close to him celebrating Christmas. Things like the Psalter, the image of them, even though he's playing this full character who's meant to be an unbeliever you can see that there's there's more of a kind of familiarity in that image than maybe the one of his family with the fools featured even in mary's reign after henry passes he's been referred to like there's someone talking about the marriage to philip an ambassador mentions that like Summer says, they should leave it to people who understand pedigrees better. So he's this figure that becomes very close to Henry. He's, a, he's going with Henry on hunts a lot, private kind of journeys that he does a lot in the 1540s uh, when he's quite alone. And he tells Henry at one point that the reason he's short of money is he has so many frauders, so many conveners and so many deceivers around them. So He's this figure that Henry seems to be able to rely on. Uh, and there's even references to them joking together. And yeah, there's this weird kind of bond between them. He seems to be one of the only people that is a conscience to Henry that he actually listens to. Everyone else seems to like him because he continues in a full role during the reign of his children. Uh, and he becomes this famous figure. Like Even in the Stuart period, people know who Will Summers is to an extent. Yeah, it's such a long career at court, considering that obviously so many people came and, and went pretty quickly. So that's amazing. And the household accounts that you've mentioned that tell us a little bit about, you know, that the fact they suggest that they were, of course, favoured because of the, the clothing and how well looked after they were. Do the, the accounts give us any other insights into what their lives were like? The household accounts are, they, they, they're the most truthful and extensive sources we have for these natural fills. But the unfortunate thing is things like them not being able to have their own wage mean that they don't always show up in dormant or ordinary warrants or accounts. And so usually it's things like clothing kind of purchases that survive. You see these figures when purchase clothing very, on a kind of regular basis. They seem to have obviously been given the clothing directly, whereas a lot of people would be paid and then just purchase their own outfits. You see mention of them having keepers, which are equivalent to having a carer in the modern day, someone whose job is to look after them and any kind of issues they might have with someone disabled. So Sexton has keepers and will. He's only mentioned after Henry's past as having keepers, but he probably did have one during the period. Jane has keepers as well. So it kind of tells you that they're providing someone to provide for their care. They're giving them clothing. We don't know about their food unless it's mentioned in reference to the keeper. And we do see records of them going on progresses. 
with the king so they're important enough to go on that with a slightly smaller court Princeton Sexton goes to Cali with the king and I think it's his second visit the one he went with Fang to you see references to, to things for transport horse, horses and stuff like that but yeah earlier on in the Tudor period it's kind of basic things like that you see or kind of wages for the people who looked after them it can tell you a lot or sometimes be very little to go on it, it just depends on the record and we've talked quite a lot about obviously the Tudor fools as they were called but what about life outside of court for people that had varying disabilities do we do we have much information about what their lives were like I think I mentioned it uh, somewhat, but yeah, there's people outside the court and some kind of records for church charity, for delivering of charity to people outside the court. You will sometimes see references to the person being a fool or being being things like that or an innocent. There isn't as many as you'd hope there would be to be able to look into. You see mentions in Kirk sessions of in Scotland, for instance, of people being disciplined. There is some things to go on. And there's one of the biggest sources is definitely though the, the inquest that decided if someone was formally in in, in legal views whether they were a fool or not. So it's it's kind of patchy when it comes to what their lives were like outside. But we have a kind of sense of the ideas people had about them, like uh, whether they could take part in religious life, whether they could work. That's why the, the fact that there's such a giant body of evidence for the Royal Court feels why it's so important, because they kind of have a de- amount of detail that we find kind of lacking elsewhere. Whereas with a lot of other disabilities, things like blindness, people who are deaf, uh, physical disabilities, there's more kind of to go on with them. It's more visible in records than stuff like neurodiversity. And you've talked obviously about um, Henry VIII and some of the other monarchs, Mary. Um, What about Elizabeth? What was her attitude towards people with, you know, her courtiers with disabilities? Elizabeth's attitude towards like disabled courtiers, it was was complex and it it was quite different to what you see with Henry with this Position usually held by a male fool of delivering comedy, telling truths, maybe maybe having a kind of companion role. During her rule, there's a lot of changes. We see her increasingly having artificial fools over natural fools in her court. At the same time, fear is blossoming uh, as a kind of a new kind of art form, and she's a big patron of that. It's slowly becoming not so taboo to have an artificial fool. And there's figures like Will Kemp, Robert Arman, Richard Tarleton, who through like Shakespearean plays, but also their own kind of careers out with that, are creating our modern kind of idea of what a jester or a clown is. So there, there is those films I mentioned from 1559 that might have been Will and Jane, and referred to as the Queen's film. Uh, Will is, I mean, in her coronation records. A keeper, George Bright's mentioned, and Jane, and they bought wonderful outfits with tinsel uh, of gold, silver, and Jane gets, for instance, a satin crimson gown. So they're getting much better clothing than they were getting earlier in the period. There's only one single fool that can definitely be pointed to is probably a natural fool or someone who at least had mental illness, a man called Monarch 
people in the 1560s to 70s who had the delusion he was a king or an emperor. And he was allowed to kind of act like that because it was humorous. She's important, though, because she's the first English ruler to make keeping wonders at the court a consistent kind of tradition. There was a Flemish giantess mentioned in Elizabeth of York's household, but she seemed to have had a temporary position. And this first wonder that appears in Elizabeth's court is Thomasina de Paris. She's first mentioned in one of the Queen's day books for the wardrobe, which were just this account that was kept of clothing that was coming and going out of the wardrobe each day uh, in 1577. People with dwarfism were often seen as figures of fun, mockery in these positions like natural fools. But with Thomas Cena, she doesn't seem to have had that kind of position as a dwarf. There's people like Jeanette Ravencroft or Pamela Allen Brown that kind of talk about how female dwarfs and fools to an extent as well had a different kind of position of being a friend, almost like a doll that you can dress up, somewhat like a pet, but also in Thomasina's case, she's also treated as a mirror to the Queen, like a reflection that people can look at and be like, wow, they look so similar yet so different. And also she becomes, uh, or was at least maybe before she came to England, seems to have been a gentlewoman or someone who was educated in France at least. Elizabeth, there's a portrait at Hampton Court of a giant porter. And yeah, royal pageants had increasingly been showing giants to be these figures who were the previous rulers of Britain before humans came. And so they're increasingly used by royals as a kind of a symbol of passing the baton on to them and kind of saying that they are worthy of ruling. At the same time, you've also got people like Francis I and that who have giant porters and guards and there's other countries where that's happening too. So there's this idea that they can protect and guard like the crown. So she seems to have maybe had one because of that. The first kind of thing that might have inspired her to bring on a giant porter was uh, entertainment that Dudley put on for her at Kenilworth Castle in 1575. And it involved this giant coming out of scary, trying to stop her coming into the castle and then just becomes awestruck by how amazing she is, probably about like Dudley himself. I think it's the keys of the castle he gives to her. It seems to have been a fake giant. It may have been a real person. It's Sometimes the descriptions don't tell you, obviously, that it's a mannequin. So that happens. And then there's also these influences for, from overseas. And in the 1580s, she has a giant porter. So it's possible that that was an influence on her deciding that. Yeah, Thomas Cena is this amazing figure, I think, because she's someone who will be in somewhat like people at Monaco in the Queen's household. She's also definitely treated like a gentlewoman of the Privy Chamber, and she's in accounts that kind of prove someone's status as that. She's given a woman servant, not a keeper, uh, and this woman's given six shillings, seven pence as a gift at New Year uh, in 1582. These are payments or provisions of food for people of the household don't survive as much for Elizabeth and Mary, so we can't tell if she had a right to them or not. Although in in uh, Scotland, Mary's uh, female fuller Jardine at the same time has a right to it. Uh, she also got clothing, which unlike the slops, which are kind of baggy pants of the period, Thomasina is getting amazing outfits. 
very often up to the Queen's death. There's day books and warrants for just seven, 1579 alone where she's getting pollen cloth, like a common uh, kind of material of the period. Uh, I think they'd be used for stays or for bedding or things like that, or, or just napkins, petticoats, gilt rings, Spanish gloves, a violet gown for her visiting sister, and gowns of white and orange damask with hanging satin sleeves. Other outfits she gets are like black tuff taffeta gowns, ones of gold stripes, satin and murray. And there's a really interesting purchase in 1580, 1581. She gets sewing needles and shears for embroidering a looking glass and a penner and inkhorn, which show her to be someone who knew to do embroidery, which a lot of the women in the household, that was a common pursuit they had. It was a kind of sign of being a gentlewoman. The looking glass might have been for her or it might have been to interact with the Queen to shortly help the Queen get ready. It's unclear. Penner and inkhorn is amazing because it shows she was definitely literate. She met women either in... Uh, England or back in France where she came from. The last records of her are of her being given clothing to being the Queen's funeral procession. So she's part of the Queen's life from the 1570s on. Uh, and she's also importantly, she's included in the New Year gift exchange, which it's not just about giving gifts, it's a it's a very formal act of uh, patronage and homage between the ruler and people of the household, usually ones with a formal position. So figures like Phil's like Jane are mentioned getting free gifts, which are ones where you're only just getting given something. It's more like charity or it's shown that your position is informal or lower down. Uh, whereas if you're part of this formal exchange where you give something and get something back, you've got more of a kind of concrete position in the household. And Thomasina features throughout these, giving usually stuff like embroidery to the Queen that she seems to have made, uh, which was a common gift for the women to give. And she would be giving back things like guilt, which was the kind of common gift at the time. This exchange would go on later on to the kind of Stuart dynasty would kind of take part in it too. We have kind of some possible references to what might have happened to her once the Queen passed. Tom Seawood's Three Wonders of the Age, uh, which taught a couple of different people of wondrous status, mentions her in a list of famous dwarfs, saying that Elizabeth had a she-dwarf who lived till she was very aged. We, we don't have an account of her getting a pension, but we seem to, maybe if Haywood had record of that, she seems to have lived to a good age after the Queen passed, although you kind of hope that she did get a retirement. But yeah, how she came to be at the court is fascinating. And, and you mentioned some of those influences that were coming from, from Europe. Can you tell us specifically about how Catherine de' Medici influenced Elizabeth's views in this area? There's been a lot of writing about the kind of exchange between women at the uh, royal courts, between noble women and that. Yeah, there's a, a book collection that came out a few years ago uh, by Nadine Ackerman and Bridget Hoban, I think it's, like, I've got a very unpronounceable name, I'm sorry if I've messed that up, and it goes on about, there's this kind of network across Europe of exchange women who marry into other families and take, they do take figures like court dwarfs that they had in their household, household or a court fool that served them, alongside all of their other entourage that come with them. So there's this exchange that women are actively taking part in, in kind of going from place to place. And with 
Thomas Cena in particular, it's fascinating because she kind of shows that Catherine de' Medici had a big influence on Elizabeth, but also Mary, who obviously was living at the court for a good period of time with Medici. So it's not been referenced much with Thomasina's origins were, uh, but there's a French historical tape and it features an account of an English ambassador to Catherine's court in 1574. The man comes across two female dwarfs dressed up as Elizabeth, he thinks, in Catherine's chamber, possibly one of the outer chambers because I don't think he'd be the most private bit, <laughs> then met a fool who'd been done up as Henry VIII, Queen's father, and he's like devastated by this, he's like shocked and appalled, and goes back to the Queen saying, saying that this is horrible, they're making fun of you, making fun of your father, and Liz kind of being quite kind of prudent, and like, she knows how to work situations, she looks at it as an opportunity, and contacts the Queen, and pretty much said, look, as an apology, why don't you give me one of the dwarves a present? So that happens, and then a few years later, Thomasina's in her household, and she's only referred to as Thomasina de Paris. Mm-hmm. So what I think happened, what I'm arguing is that that's directly connected, that you know, was one of them. Uh, and there is a sister who visits Thomasina at one point, so that might have been her sister that was taking part in that. So there's that idea even before she's with Elizabeth, of her mirroring mm-hmm. the Queen. Medici kind of comes to France, bringing the earlier tradition of keeping fools and especially dwarfs to France. In Italy, much earlier, we see uh, court dwarfs. Uh, one of the most obvious examples of this is Isabella Deist, who is mentioned breeding dwarfs. There's this fascination that we have with dwarfs to the extent where they want to create more. Mm-hmm. And so they would have a male or female dwarf and try and create a kid. And it seems to have been consensual to an extent. Like you don't ever hear their side, obviously, and it is pretty gross. It's like it's a, a part of the lives of these court dwarfs where they definitely seem to be dehumanized. They're almost treated like they're horses or hunting dogs getting bred for the best quality. And the issue is obviously that dwarfism isn't always something that a child will get if their parents were dwarfs. So at times these rulers are totally confused because a child of a kind of average height is born. Isabella East was someone who did that a lot and would send what she called her race of little dwarfs mm-hmm. to people people who she wanted to kind of kind of get in good with, people like Madame uh, Renata, the French court. When Medici came from Italy, she also brought people with her, like a dwarf valley of her chamber called Jahan de Nano, Nano being a word for small. So he came with her to France in 1533, and he was treated just like the other valleys. So he's, he's, he's treated differently, but he's also treated as one of the household what we see with Thomasina, with the court fools, there's always a sense that they are very different. Even their position in the household, though it does exist, is quite hard to prove. It's quite, it's not got all the kind of standard signs of someone being part of the household, like payments and all that. Look, France is the first to had a valley full and things, things like that. With Catherine, we also see, I think it was like a, a Jean Petit. So there's a female dwarf she has, and later on she has a troop 
of dwarfs uh, who include figures like Catherine Lejardini. There's a court full of Mary Stuart Lejardini, who might be referred, might be a reference to that, either Mary just referencing it or because the people were related, it's unclear. There's also different people uh, with dwarfism, with names like the Moor, the Turk, the Dwarf Marvel, August Romanesque. So he, I think maybe he was done up in Roman kind of outfits and he carried a sword and dagger. There was a Polish dwarf and a dwarf monk. So these figures seem to have more of a kind of role that's just about being wonderful, about being court dwarfs. So you see some people with uh, in Medici's court that have this kind of double role, uh, double role where they are just normal household figures, but also wonders. And these figures who are defined solely by being kind of different. So one of Catherine's dwarfs, Thomasina, seemed to be given as a gift to Elizabeth. And Catherine was also a patron to people like Petrus Gonzalez, who was a hirsute man. His family and him were portrayed in images a lot. And he received a military and literary education at the French court. He had quite a sad life, though. Uh, and when she died, she didn't leave anything to him and his family, but she did to her dwarfs. So there's there's a lot of traditions that she brings from Italy to France. And then the French court inspires people like uh, Mary de Guise, then Mary Stuart and Elizabeth. With Mary the First, Mary Tudor, she seems to more kind of follow her brother and her dad's tradition of keeping films. But yeah, there's this kind of different way of having these disabled figures at the court that seems to be quite feminine, not as solely defined by a comedic role based on ridicule, but kind of closer companionship with their ruler. It kind of shows how connected all these women were, even when they were fighting one another or... That's so fascinating. Obviously, um, it's wonderful the work you're doing. Thank you for, you know, bringing a voice to to these people with disabilities at the royal courts. It is aspects of it are quite disturbing as well, but I think it's important for us to obviously discuss this. So, so thank you very much. There is one last thing that I do ask my guests, and that is for a Tudor takeaway. So this is something just for our listeners to go off and explore after the episode. Sometimes people have a website that they suggest or a book to read or a film to watch. Do you have a Tudor takeaway for us? I would recommend people, obviously there's a lot of good period dramas most of them don't feature the fools or wonders in a, the capacity that they wear in actual life. And there is good books I would recommend. That collection I mentioned about noble women in the household, book by Philippa Vincent Connolly. There's All the King's Fools, which just came out, which is very interesting and looks at it from a kind of disabled point of view. And recommend just looking into disabled history in general because it is fascinating. and often shows that progress is not linear it wasn't awful for people and then things get steadily better different kind of periods different societies had different places or or lacked places for figures like this but it's just such a fascinating way to look at history and it shows that disabled people we've always been here we've always had important roles and we might sometimes lack a voice in these records, but there's proof that we existed and mattered. Oh, what an excellent um, way to end, I think, the episode. Thank you again for joining us on Talking Tudors. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. 
Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetutortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tutors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Music